Storytelling Vendors, a sound designer's podcast. Here are your hosts, Timothy and Renee. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Tone Menders. My name is Tim Muirhead, and I will be your host today. And as usual, my co-host is Renee Coronado. How you doing, Renee? Hey, Tim. How are you? I am very good. Sitting in the booth with me, I have a bunch of different people, and uh, I'm going to introduce them right now. These guys all worked on a film called Dreaming of a Jewish Christmas that will be playing uh, all around the world this holiday season. It's going to be playing in Japan, in the UK, in the United States, in Canada, and I'm sure various other places. So uh, you're going to want to find a way to watch this film after we talk about it. We'll be playing clips as we go. But uh, first up, we have Richard Spence Thomas, who is the re-recording engineer on the project. Uh, He owns Spence Thomas Audio Post, a studio that's been in business for over 40 years and started by his father, Patrick. He's literally been loading reels onto dubbers since he was a child and uh, quite literally grew up in audio post-production. Richard has won awards for mixing animated series in documentaries and reality shows. Thanks for sitting in with us today, Richard. Hello, Tim. How you doing? Aaron Davis is a music director, composer for film. He is a live performer and responsible for over 100 film scores, and he was the music director on Dreaming of a Jewish Christmas. Hey there, Tim. Gary Vaughn is a location recordist, sound editor, and whatever else you need. His career goes back to cutting sound on the Dukes of Hazard and has covered just about everything Audio Post has to offer. You have to since. back up and, and redo that because that I've been trying to get that credit off my IMDb page for <laughs> 15 years. This is why years. I sent it to you ahead of time. So you could... <laughs> I did not work on the Dukes of Hazard. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, <shit>. Okay. <laughs> Gary Vaughn is a location recorder, sound editor, and whatever else you need. His career goes way back, and he, by his own description, <laughs> some of the stuff he worked on hasn't sucked. <laughs> That's how he described his career earlier today for me. <laughs> uh, and finally, we have Liam Romales, a veteran producer in the world of performing arts and cultural productions. His work is aired on television screens online and at film festivals around the world. Welcome to the show, Liam. Thank you. And for the record, I am a Jew. You, okay. That gets us. Shalom. <laughs> <laughs> so why don't we start today with uh, going to the producer, Liam. Why don't you tell us how Dreaming of a Jewish Christmas came to be and kind of the basic plot of the film for people who haven't seen it? Sure. Dreaming of a Jewish Christmas is just your average Jewish Christmas musical documentary. (laughs) It's a film that looks at the phenomenon. So many of the most famous Christmas songs were inexplicably written by Jewish composers, which seems inexplicable until you actually start to examine it, and then you realize it makes all the sense in the world. So that's what the film explores, and we do it in a variety of ways. We do it through documentary, through interviews with experts, and we also use narrative techniques. So we set part of the film in a Chinese restaurant where the it's a magical Chinese restaurant that comes to life, and a lot of these great songs are performed throughout the film. Sleigh bells ring, are you listening in the lane? Snow is listening, a beautiful sight. And the film's been really well received, so congratulations on that. Thank you. And uh, why don't we start, from a sound perspective, kind of the pre-production of the music for the film. So do you want to kind of tell us uh, how the music plays a role in the film? Well, the setting of the Chinese restaurant was one of the early conceits. Uh, And that was really... Jason Charters, and when he was doing a bunch of research, we realized that um, this Jason tri- was one of the your co-producer and my the co-producer writer and the writer, and ended up being the narrator as well. It, the this relationship that Jews have to Chinese 
food uh, on Christmas. Christmas Eve and Christmas Day is this a legendary relationship. So it was an early, early conceit, which I think determined a lot of the creative decisions from that point on. And uh, Aaron, who is the music director? We all got together. That is Liam, uh, Jason Charters, and uh, Larry Weinstein, the director, and, and me, and sort of brainstormed about different singers, different songs that might be appropriate. Of course, the rights had to be uh, had to be ascertained to know that we were working on them for sure, but it all had to take place in this Chinese restaurant in 1967. So it's a partly a period piece, but it's also a magical situation. So there was a lot of creative license for us to really blue sky and think of some some cool things. And everybody has worked with a lot of different performers uh, in the Toronto music scene. And so we, we just kind of imagined who would be good at singing what song and what would it be a good take be for that song, because not all the songs are are done in their typical ways. There was really a lot of creative license for, for me and for the other performers to arrange different versions of these tunes. And the fact is, a lot of these tunes are really well-written, and a really well-written song can stand multiple interpretations and arrangements. For one of the tunes, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, the, the idea was to have them performing it in the alleyway behind the Chinese restaurant by a couple of hobos. You know there's Dasher and Dancer and Prancer and Vixen Comet and Cupid and Donner and Blitzen But do you recall the most famous reindeer of all and so there are two really talented uh, musicians, Kevin Bright, the guitar player, and Tom Wilson, the singer. So the idea was that the people from the restaurant are, are going to be giving them uh, chicken balls behind the restaurant, and they're going to be singing about Rudolph. With a uh, sauce-covered chicken ball on their nose <laughs> exactly. to represent the Rudolph, which is a wonderful touch, I thought. And then there's another, another one of the tunes was involved Stephen Page of the Bare Naked Ladies singing Silver Bells. And for that one, originally I thought, I like the idea of a bell sort of becoming a psychedelic bell because 67 was, that was the year that Sgt. Pepper came out and thinking of it as a psychedelic experience where, and as it turned out, it it has much more poignant and, and kind of uh, uh, more, more poignant treatment, less psychedelic, but but we used sonically um, I recorded a lot of kind of treated bells. Silver bells Silver bells It's Christmas time and then it turns into a turns into a magical dance of, uh, between Stephen, who's come to get takeout, and the elderly Chinese woman, who is the takeout woman, and they end up doing a wonderful, beautiful dance in the middle. Hear them ring. So, the music was all prepared before shooting. No, 
I mean, no. this is from tune to tune. It's it's radical. I don't think there's one tune that's done the same. Which is that right? I think every, this is Richard here. <laughs> uh, I think the, the 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 amazing thing about this particular uh, show is that every song, every single performance has a different aspect to it, a different complexity. Some that, of it's completely that, live, and I guess some of it is. Well, half and half. Half and half. Some of it is completely lip synced, and but yeah. uh, but some of it is uh, a hybrid of both uh, of both sort of methods of producing it. But I think the songs sort of uh, you know came together a lot on set. Am I wrong that that, that there sort of was a lot of uh, pre planning for, for certain tunes? Yeah. But but for some of the tunes, we had I had already taken singers in, and there was they had cut the recordings that we had done, uh, but at the same time. We always made stems, so there was always stems to go to these guys, so that when it came to the live recording, we were always dealing with the same, uh, you know, the same reference. Because mm-hmm. I can imagine the film, the scene that we referenced earlier with the uh, hobo singing in the the alleyway behind the restaurant. That would be impossible to lip sync to because they seem to be. Uh, going to their own beat there almost like it was a fairly wild performance what it did end up being live but i think the beginning of that is actually uh the the beginning of it where they're not on camera there was some amazing improv that uh tom was doing he was going you know you'll go down in history way down like he was like uh he was improvising some amazing stuff so we got some of that uh, in the film before you actually get a close-up of his face. Yeah, that, that's an an interesting one. This is Liam, because that was an all-night shoot. And we had Tom Wilson and Kevin Bright with us. And when Tom got to set, it was very... He was supposed to have memorized the song. He was supposed to have taken the recording that Aaron did and listened to it. He was supposed to have it burned in his memory. He got to set... He did. He hadn't listened to it once. In fact, he didn't even know the lyrics. <laughs> right. So, we were. You know, this is a case of we've got a huge number of crew. We've got generators. We're outside the Chinese restaurant. We've got to a certain point uh, time of the night because we're in a neighborhood and there are uh, sound bylaw noise bylaws. And, and it's, it's cold. And it's freezing. It's really cold. And and Kevin has to play. His metal guitar. <laughs> and we are scrambling. We're, we are literally writing out the song on giant cue cards for Tom Wilson. But And that was a case where he, there's no way he's going to be able to lip sync this song. Right. It was, it's just too complicated to, to, to do in, a, in that scenario. So what did you do? Well, Gary? Uh, well, Gary was the location recordist that night. So I, I should preface it by saying that he ran that, around screaming. That <laughs> Liam, Liam, and Richard and I have worked together for over a hundred years, combined time, perhaps. Combined yeah. Time. <laughs> and so we, we've done, and we've done a lot of live music in some interesting places. I, I have had a lot of experience assessing how can we make this happen, and we just kind of triaged the situation and said, well. We can. I mean, we we knew there was always this sort of feeling that we we may lip sync it or we may record it live, depending on the situation. In this situation, clearly, we were going to have to do it live. So we were able to uh, wire Tom up nicely with a, a microphone that would work for him because he was pretty animated. 
Definitely. You know, yeah. using and you know, had a, and he had a chicken ball on his nose. Chicken ball. Yeah, chicken ball on his nose. And it was freezing. And it was freezing. And of course, you know, the Jenny guy puts the generator because we're doing lip sync. He puts the generator like two feet away from the set, so we move that away. So we we kind of triage all these problems. Uh, Richard and I do a lot of um, uh, plays where they they bury mics in the in, uh, in the hair, mm-hmm. uh, and that works really well because when you're really animated, you you can eliminate a lot of uh, yeah. You just you don't get it's any. You also down. don't uh, you, you don't get, get any phasing. aspect yeah. changes when when they shift their heads. So we've learned that if you're flailing around with a chicken ball on your nose, uh, that 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 works best. So that's what we did, and then uh, we were a little concerned because we had to put uh, you know snot tape the mics to the bottom of Kevin's guitars. And we were like, well, you know, if we put this on here, it might damage the finish. And he's like, look at this guitar, which was like this metal thing that he got out of a, from a yard sale or so. I don't know where he got it, but he, he was not concerned about damaging the guitar. So we were able to get a nice, and of course we used the uh, garbage can uh, shotgun mic, which we, which I, um, I gaffer taped to the back of the garbage can. That was the sort of last minute because we weren't quite getting the coverage we wanted from the lab. And it was freezing cold. We also, it was also boomed. Correct me if I'm right. There was also a boom We available. boomed. Yeah, we boomed the yeah. uh, the beginning of it. But, uh, but I think I think we in, in the final analysis, we did use the hair mic. Uh, it, it, right. Although not, not as Because we were cutting back to the wide so yeah. yeah. It, it turned out to be the better the better choice in, in the final analysis. Can we talk about how you were handling playback on the set? Like, as were you doing speakers, in-ears, or how was that working? One of the challenges was we didn't have any rehearsal time with the performers. So we had to feel everybody out as we went. We gave them phone acts um, in-ear for basically pitch. Pitch and timing. Uh, pitch and timing. We gave them a click track and their uh, studio uh, performance, which we had to match because we wanted to have that flexibility later on. And the reason you made that choice is because it's so small. It's visual, be, right? You, yeah, you have to hide. Choice. They're made by hearing aid company. And so they're they're very tiny, which is what's important. You just basically, you figure out which side you're shooting from and you just put it in the other ear. And then in some cases, we knew that people were going to want a little more in the room to give them something to sing to. Because the phonex are, are pretty low-fi. They're extremely low-fi. But we knew that if we played the Pro Tool session back and there was no latency, that it would be in phase. So we could add it to the mix without any problems. It would just add a little bit more of, you know, with whatever room ambience we recorded. So we just put a little wedge down beside them and then we just say, well, what are you comfortable with? And uh, because we were using Pro Tools and everything was, you know, in phase. On set, you were using, you had the Pro Tools. Yes, yeah, so we had a full Pro Tools rig with all of Aaron's stems that we could say, okay, well, like in Dion's case, she said, well, if I just had a little bit of guitar. Dion was one of the singers, the performers. She was uh, singing a jazz version. Right. So she said, you know, I can hear myself and I, and I hear the click, but uh, I, I need a little something more to, to sing to. So we were able to give her a little bit of guitar in the room and uh, that just gave her the boost she needed to be able to sing. And of course, that bled into her mic and uh, we were able to get it very close because thankfully the DP and the producers, we've worked together a lot and they knew that we needed a very tight shot to be able to get our mic in. And they were able to accommodate us with a really nice close-up. It was bleeding a little bit, but very, very little. And of course, now we have the tools yeah. are... Yeah, cleaning it up, you know, with isotope or whatever. And I don't think we used it in the final analysis, but... Uh, but we certainly we, we could have. Sure. I don't think that affected us at all playing and, it in the... And I think, but, but it actually, it did something 
critical, something else critical. And that is, it's a scene where we have 50 other diners who are surrounding Dion Taylor. So because they were hearing the song, it's registering on their face. I'm not sure that that was the intention, but that's that's what it, it did. Although it's been said many times, many ways, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas to So having Pro Tools was like great for doing that yeah. because we knew everything was going to line up at the end. Our recordings were all going to line up. With were you that. running Pro Tools just off a laptop? Yeah, I just had my, my MacBook Pro and uh, I had a Mackie Huey and I had, you know, because we had to do a lot of mixing, potting things in and out to uh, accommodate people. Yeah, the monitors, the monitoring, you know, mixing live was, was a bit of a thing. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Ultimately, lip syncing is terrible. Uh, the results are just not at all believable, no matter how good the lip sync is. So I think over the last 20 years, we have all come to the conclusion that really the only way to do this is to record vocals live. live. Yeah. And when the idea for this show was originally proposed, I, I said, hey, we should, you know, we should absolutely try to record this live, inspired by some work we'd done over the past number of years and had great success at it. Uh, but also by Les Mis and other other large productions that had proven that it was possible to do this, um, and uh, and Liam and Jason uh, said, yeah, absolutely. That's and they were completely bought in right from the word go. They put their faith in us that what we said we could do, we could do, uh, foolishly. And we were sixty two percent sure that we were sixty two percent sure we could actually yeah. make it happen. And you know, having said that, you know, you have to have performers who can actually do that. And luckily on this show, we had that. We, you know, we, we were very lucky to work with uh, instrumentalists and vocalists who, who could actually do this and pull it off. We're kind of talking now at the tail end of 2018. Uh, Les Mis was... 2012. Uh, 2012. Uh, so, and now, so we've, we've kind of come to this point where with Star is Born and now with um, uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, where it's sort of the standard procedure because people are... Right. Waking up to the fact that no matter how good you sing something in a studio, it never, it can never sound the same as if you're singing it live. No matter how good the technical plosives of the lips are, the feeling can never be replicated. It's, you it's sing differently in a studio than you do in front of people on a set, even if there's only 12 people around you or whatever the number is. And there's just psychoacoustically, that's the way it is. And now we're waking up to that, and now this is the new standard, I think. Yeah, it does take courage. And I remember sitting in pre-production meetings with the director, Larry Weinstein, who, he's amazing. He's one of the leading arts directors in the country. And he's done films like September Songs with, with Lou Reed and, and um, Nick Cave and uh, uh, Beethoven's Hair and Mozart Balls. And in every one of these films, films, and they're all, uh, many of them are often performance films, it's all lip sync. So, you, Gary, you remember those conversations. Richard, were you at I wasn't there, but uh, 
where where I think Larry was pretty incredulous that we could pull this off. And we essentially strong-armed him. No, you did. <laughs> right? If we don't do it, this is a film that we won't enjoy. And I think our goal somehow was to make a film that we would enjoy watching. But very few things that, that I go back and watch where we've just done lip sync, do I have that um, really strong emotional connection to? No, you can tell immediately, and you, you know immediately that, that it's honest when these people are actually performing that the, the vocal on set. And it's interesting to watch the process because in our case, as we, we mentioned before, we had options. So we had everybody double their vocals so that we had so that if it didn't work ultimately for you know technical reasons on set that we always had a good tight double with the original vocal we could go back to that well and, and it's actually there's some songs where we actually mixed and matched so right. silver so, bells with stephen page blends back and forth between the live right. and the pre-recorded oh, wow. vocals uh, I could not. I would never pick that out. Like, yeah. It's, well, I mean, it's a, it's right a testament. Yeah. It's it's a testament. One. I mean, the original vocals were great. So uh, during the dance scene, uh, I think it was one take on that, right? And so he and the timing just didn't work out. They had to it had to be lip sync on that. Yeah. But the whole rest of the song was recorded live. So Stephen's going to come in and sit down and sing this song. Great. Except the, our wonderful DP Karash, who we all love dearly, decided he wanted to do a Wes Anderson. So he wanted to have about 17 feet of headroom, which is great f for the boom operator. They love that, yeah. especially when you're doing music. So uh, we came up with this idea that we would shoot, because uh, it was we're locking the camera off, we would shoot a plate, put the boom in, and then just run the top end of the plate. House in of Cards style. Yes. And, and it was seamless. And we had perfect sound off of our beautiful microphone three inches away from him. And uh, and it worked out perfectly. Um, I, I'd love to. I mean, it, it clearly to my ears did not sound like it was lobs on anybody. Um, but yeah, I did notice the high headroom shots in, in places, and I'm like, how are they even miking this? Um, I, I'd just love to hear what your approach was. First off, uh, so I guess first off, um, we have a, a Shope CMC5, which uh, is one of my absolute favorite microphones. Uh, got it at a pawn shop for two hundred bucks. Full disclosure: yeah. Richard is the <laughs> biggest mic nerd. Yeah, uh, not only have I ever met, but probably most of your listeners have ever met. He's in a program. Yeah, it's, it, there's a program for guys like me. Uh, but yeah, so mo most of the, that is the the shops. But um, a lot of the time, especially in the alley scene, there were plants uh, in the hair. Uh, yeah, everything else. Uh, we the opening scene was uh, labs and a higher. I think we had to Sennheiser shotgun for that. That's yeah, it. and you had live instruments going the whole time as well. Um, well, at least in, in those spots, definitely in the alley. In, um, in two, in two scenes, guitar. yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and there was also the, the uh, was it, no, do you see what I see? Um, well, that. you know, and I think that, you know, because we put so much effort into pre-recording all of these tracks, I think it actually allowed the different performers to come on set and, and do their thing. But... It was that it was like a, a fantastic foundation and rehearsal leading up to the shoot. Do you hear what I hear? Aviva Chernik was a little different because they got together to pre-record the song, and Aviva basically said, "I can't do it. I can't pre-record this. We are going to have to do it live." 
And it was the only song, I think, that we went into the shoot without anything. Now, to Aaron's credit and, Gary, to your credit, you said, let's do it. And that was a scene where we had full cast and crew. Mm -hmm. The restaurant was full, and we had a very limited period of time. It was a busy day. I think I was probably most nervous about that song because there was no safety And we're, we're on, so we, we have this massive lighting setup for color changes and all kinds of crazy lighting that was going on that was all blackout right out into Bathurst Street. And that's, in yeah, Toronto, yeah. it's a major thoroughfare. thoroughfare. And so, you know, Liam is kind of freaking out because he's like, well, can we do this? So, so I don't freak out. You know, he freaks out in the Liam way, which is very contained. But so, you know, obviously the way to do it was to make sure that we had the tightest shot we could get so we could get the mic as close as possible. And because Crash and I worked together for a long time and done m many of these kinds of things, we were able to work together and get. And he actually listened to you. He does, which is weird. Uh, <laughs> but he, and And that's, you know, how we were able to get really nice and close and get that super intimate sound. And it's super intimate. It's also super exposed. There's nothing else but the voice and the bass going on there. Well, that really all, is exposed. That's, that, to their credit, I mean, they're beautiful arrangements. Do you see was a song that when it was finished, it, it, the whole energy in the room shifted. Do you remember yeah. that? idea that he wanted everyone to play the water glasses mm -hmm. at the end of the song. Yeah. Right? And we we recorded that. That's, oh, that's Well, we recorded it, but we couldn't use the recording for a couple of reasons. So I had to go out to, you know, Value Village and find the most resonant glasses. The, the you most get. resonant glasses we could find. And then I discovered that, because the scene's quite long, it's a, a couple of minutes of yeah. doing this. It's about uh, six minutes. I and think. there's many shots, so we had to have different pitches. And trying to maintain that I can't even do it. Gary's making a circular motion. With you know, when finger. you wet a glass, a good crystal glass, and you make that sound. It was so fun doing that, like doing all the Foley for, you know, Holly Jolly, where we're, you know, destroying lots of vegetables. were banging on bowls and whisks on counters and There was shakers. also knives, like really yeah. sharp knives that were... <laughs> they were throwing around. were yeah. uh, being swung around and right. chopping well, on the block. In Foley, I was able to layer like a whole Some bunch other of... Stuff too, uh, yeah. uh, so other stuff, and so that gave us a lots of flexibility when we were mixing. Uh, one of the things that, that I think is really somewhat unique about, about our workflow is that Gary, you know, was the location recordist and a, and a big integral part of the 
pre-planning process, but also knowing that he was a, a crucial member of, of the post-production team. When we didn't get a sound on location, he knew right then and there that he was going to be the guy who was going to have to recreate it. So when we couldn't get the glasses on set for a number of reasons, it's like, okay, don't worry. I'm going to be the guy putting this in later, and so I can't complain to the location sound recorders. That, oh, why didn't he get? Complain. He could still well, complain, yeah. but well, and but, I think you know, I think for most of us, and you know, Tim, you included, because we all cross over a lot, and when you do that, when you're on set, and you can be that guy that says, "Don't worry, it's it's okay," yeah. with that, confidence, with confidence, confidence. Yeah. that's huge. When you can say, "Don't worry about that," that's going to be fine. We'll get that out. And this is, it, Liam, it's huge for the producers uh, to to know that it's a very organic closed loop in a way, knowing that that you're, you, you guys are in at the earliest stages of the conversation, really for, almost from treatment stage through pre-production, on set, Richard came to set, and then seeing it finished – you did all of the post on it. I mean, it's such a luxury. Yeah, I mean, it make, there's a lot of there's a lot of advantages there. You know, when we were you know in post production mixing the show, and and uh, I was able to walk over to the, the the video post suite and say, hey, listen, let's just shift this shot by three frames later, and we're going to solve a huge audio issue. You know, because we're jumping time in a in a piece of music here or something well, along those we, lines. Uh, you know, a couple of times we we started out thinking we were going to use the lip sync. Uh, because it was kind of cut that way. And then we realized, you know, if we make a few tweaks in the picture, we can actually go back to the uh, to the live sound, and it just made a huge difference. So the picture was cut using the production track? In, in, in a couple of cases, yes. Yes. And then you were able to go in and make the live recording work with... Yes. Even so, though it was not cut with the live recording. So in, in the case of uh, Winter Vinterland... This is a Yiddish version, Yiddish of, version of, of Winter Wonderland. Wonderland. Yeah. Um, the definitive version yeah. of Winter Wonderland. The, the, the picture, <laughs> there were, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but there were, I think there were three or four takes shot live and then a couple of takes shot to playback. Right. Um, and so when it, that got into picture editorial, the, the director and, and the editor decided to just go with the pre-record and cut it that way. Uh, and that's what we got. And in post production, we said, "Well, wait a second. Let's turn on the let's turn on the mics for for those shots." And we were able to, to to turn it into a live track, but obviously with some some tweaks that had to be made editorially to make it work. But it turned out, I think, to be a much better track as a result. And there was a, you know, a reality to the, to the, to the real sound that we went and we, okay, whatever we have to do, we're going to make this work. And once again, it wasn't edited that way, but we were able, luckily, we had the luxury of being able to make it work in, and, in, in and post. W- you know, th- going forward, there's no, there's absolutely, like, even if it meant uh, spending a little more time figuring out how to uh, make it happen. I mean, I, w- I would love to try doing something that was a little bit even more challenging you know, to, to see how far you could stretch it. Yeah. I, I mean, I would go as far as to say that without the, the way in which we recorded and manipulated the sound, this film wouldn't get much recognition. Like, I really think it's the difference between passable, good, and great. I, 
uh, one of the things I wanted to bring up earlier, Tim, was that you, you mentioned we had a Pro Tools rig on set, which is how we were recording this stuff. But there was also an, a number of times when the form of the songs was sort of changing in real time on set. So having that there, we weren't locked into, well, this is how Aaron pre-produced the track. We have to fit this timing. So Gary was actually performing real-time music edits to, you know, pad out the opening scene, loop a set of drums at the front of a song uh, because we had to get performers to march through the scene, you know, in, in a certain time. It, it allowed us to onset in real time, sort of manipulate the whole form of the track. And you uh, had to retain those edits through the whole workflow, I guess? Yes, and then that was the way it was all the way that into was the post. master, yeah. So we, we did a lot of work, you know, pre-production. We got the tracks from Aaron uh, the week before uh, we went to camera and prepped the sessions for this uh, with count-ins and, and all the things we were going to need. But once again, until we actually got there on set, we didn't know what was going to happen. Uh, you know, best laid plans. We had this grand idea that everything would be head slated. We had all these great tracks all laid out and that we could manipulate for playback however they were needed. And Larry, the director, like first shot says, oh, uh, I, I just want to start, let's start in a little bit. <laughs> uh, easy, okay, right? so what we're going to do is we're going to head slate and then everyone can just kind of sit around and have a coffee for like two minutes until we get to the section. So obviously we had to go to tail slates. Uh, we were also shooting 4K raw, which meant we had uh, six minutes or seven yeah. minutes on a roll of 256 gigabyte. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we had probably as many uh, rollouts as we did successful tail slates. <laughs> uh, but thankfully it's, you know. Yeah, but also being in control of the post-production process there meant that it wasn't a big issue right. because we would just, okay, we'll just fix it. You but know? That, sort of, that sort of meant we had to make a kind of a 180 pretty quick in terms of how how we sure. were managing everything. You're known for your nimbleness, Gary. Well, well I'm nimble. so I, I'm this nimble. is Liam. I have a question for you, Gary. All right. And uh, I'm not sure I actually asked this question on set because perhaps I didn't want to know the answer. Mm -hmm. But did you have fun? Was it fun? I'm having fun now. Well, I know you're having fun now, but did you, it, it, was it any fun for you on set? No, it was it was fun. I mean, when like once you're rolling and you and again because I work in post and I work with Richard, like you know, there a recorder sitting there in that situation might be freaking out, thinking, "Well, the mixer is going to you know have kittens when he gets his material." I mean, we've worked together for thirty over thirty years, and so I know what he's going to do or how he's going to respond. So, and it's like, okay, we're missing slates. I know we can deal with that later. We'll figure it out. I have to say there was a great moment the day I showed up on set. I was actually on my way to the airport to go to NAB in Las Vegas. And I was sort of driving by the set. So I, I drove up and I had about an hour before I had to get on the plane. Very nice. I was, I, I was overdressed. Jason turned to me and said, you know, Richard's the only one who actually looks like a producer. <laughs> <laughs> And I, I go back to the audio card and I put the headphones on and Gary is, he's looking a little bit stressed that day because, you know, there's a, there's a lot of pieces in motion, you know, uh, playback and, you know, uh, people with the craft service running over the wires and jeopardizing the set and the action is called and we roll and the song starts. And at the end of it, I, I had chills running up and down my spine. It was so fantastic. And I knew, I knew right then that 
there was something special going on. I, I walked out of that and I got on the plane and went, yeah, this is going to be great. <laughs> you know, it was it was obvious that that we were onto something. Um, there's something I want to go back to that we mentioned earlier. The idea that uh, the director wasn't fully on board for the idea of doing the live music. So when did that tide change? Like you, you said you strong-armed him into going along with it, but was there a point where he realized that uh, he, maybe this was the way to go? Uh, I, I'm going to say I think it was right after party. final playback. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I honestly, I think that's the answer. You know, I mean, Larry, to his great credit, he gave himself over to it. Yeah, he did. You know, one of the really significant relationships that a director has, of course, is to the cinematographer. And Larry has great DPs that he works with. We said to him, you, we're not doing this film if you don't use Karash. And that was, that was a biggie. And then we said, well, and actually, we're not doing the film unless we can use Gary and Richard. <laughs> and, and the list kept going. Um, so and we have some ideas about craft service people. Craft service, yeah. Okay. <laughs> but it, it's, uh, I, I think, Richard, you are right. Um, and I, I honestly, I mean, I think this is one of the brilliant things. I'm not certain um, that it, until we actually said, no, that was all live, that he was ever completely aware of it while we were in the middle of the process. Well, Renee made that comment, and it's, you know, I mean, that's, that's all, Richard. Uh, blending that stuff together and being a probably the biggest plug-in nerd, well, certainly that I know. He he maximizes everything. He squeezes every drop out of out of uh, all of the stuff he has. Uh, so that's 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 all you. Well, well let's talk uh, about the mix. So once you got the once you got those tracks in, what were the what were the surprises? What were the challenges? What what would you have to deal with? Well, I mean, luckily, uh, I, you know, I'd like to take all the credit, but I've I've often said the last thing I want to do is be fighting a mix. I, I want to sit down on that first day and and get the those chills up my spine just by listening to those raw tracks. And quite frankly, I don't want to do anything to it if I don't have to. I like those sort of clean, honest recordings with a great microphone and and to listen to what it sounds like. Um, yeah, I, blending between the studio and the live when we, you know, when we didn't have the the live recordings, that was a bit of a challenge in in a couple of spots. And then in in the Holly Jolly song in the kitchen, uh, add on to that, you know, uh, an entire layer of foley that Gary did for the kitchen implements being used as percussion instruments. Actually, that was probably the biggest challenge was taking that and then blending that with the pre-recorded percussion instruments to get it all to sound cohesive. But it all worked out really, really, really well. Um, you know, standard de-clicking and de-thumping and de-noising that we're, we're all used to. But apart from that, there there wasn't. And we had, on some of the songs, these extraordinarily rich, layered tracks to work with. And so just sort of figuring out how many little sweeteners we wanted to put in, musical sweeteners, you know, um, there's a... A, a saw blade in the in the Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer scene. Yes. That, once again, was that element that I didn't think was necessary, and I actually had it excluded right till the final hour of the mix. That was Larry, Larry loves the saw, yeah. the wine glasses. And, and, it, and he just had us play it up at the last moment, and it just it lifted that scene right at the very end. And the, actually, another good one was that during the wine glass scene on... on um, 
hear what I hear. Do you hear what I hear? Uh, there was a dissonant. One of the wine glasses Gary did was was very dissonant, and it, I had mixed it out. I didn't. I didn't think it worked. And and then once again, Larry forced me to go back and and listen again, and uh, and I put it in, and there it was. It just came alive again. It just sort of added that chaotic thing to that scene that wasn't previously there. Larry uh, had some marvelous times actually working with him because he pushed me in directions that I wouldn't normally have gone. Um, you know, uh, I've often said one of the problems that we have mixing shows is that we work until it doesn't suck anymore, right? And then we stop. It's like, oh, no, no, that sounds great. There's nothing wrong with it. Uh, and then we stop working. But maybe we shouldn't. Maybe we should explore uh, more avenues. And Larry did exactly that with me. The The lion dance was a, a, a big one, right? Because yeah. they were... Uh, have, have a holly jolly Christmas starts out in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. And there's like a soundscape that I and percussionist had recorded beforehand, which moves into a barbershop quartet uh, with the kitchen workers in the Chinese restaurant lip-syncing and then moves out into a room where there's a lion dance with traditional Chinese percussion. And then Holly Jolly Christmas is echoed through that. And so that was perhaps the most challenging. Oh yeah, you know, Gary did an amazing job recording it on the floor, but it's a very chaotic scene. There's a million elements and people clapping and yelling. Dragons. They're actually lions, I learned that. There's lions, okay. And and there's a special instrument that makes that roar sound that wasn't there on set, that was layered in. So out of the kitchen doors comes this uh, multi-person Chinese dragon, which is actually a lion, and the yeah. uh, the people eating in the restaurant then become the audience for this performance. Right. So it continued. Yeah. So I mean that, and it we started, and it was almost it was too clean. That scene. One of the things I I begin to embrace about soundtracks is chaos. Is that that layer that you can't get if you overplan things, right? On set, there was this real chaotic element to that. And it was a very chaotic scene. Stuff was happening all over the place. And there was, you know, cymbals crashing and timpanis bashing and, you know, uh, people stomping up and down. And uh, and, and, and I'm going to interject because... So you, you say planning. We had zero pl- – I mean it was basically like, well, this is what we're doing. And and I had sort of envisioned that I would get a chance to plant mics all over because there were drummers and there were – there was all kinds of – so I, I had this grand idea of, of making all these plants that would give us this fantastic. And it was like, OK, let's go. And – Okay, go. camera's ready. And so it was basically two booms. We, we, <laughs> we, we just maffered a, 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 a shotgun to like the somewhere. I can't remember. You it was maffered like a, it? Well, you know, maffer clamp. <laughs> Sorry. It just to, to, a, to a pipe or something. And then we just had a boom swinging wherever we could. And that was it. That was all we had. Uh, so that gave us – because it's very loud. It's, it's massively loud. And so Richard got this great idea because we, we couldn't get the drums. The, it was just wasn't enough. We're too far away. And too far away. And there was because we were shooting multi-camera, you know, we had no no options. Uh-huh. Uh, nowhere to put wires, nowhere to put wireless. So R- Richard actually took uh, the, uh, the the drum track, which was pretty strident, and uh, extracted that and uh, – did a MIDI trigger and got some really cool sounding drums and layer that over top. And that just like gave us that 
gives bottom, the bottom end, end just thickness locked it all together. That, that mixed with that sort of very chaotic, very messy uh, live recording in a lot of ways. Yeah. But it, it just came alive as a result. It added that element of closeness to, to what was an otherwise chaotic recording. Uh, and it was great. And in fact, without the live stuff, it, it just fell flat. Right, it, it needed that chaos there. It, you know, luckily on this, we had a little extra time than we normally do on a. You know, it's a forty-five minute do- documentary or well, various forms. But you know, normally we we would have a slightly tighter timeline. We had luckily on this, we we managed to squeak out a few extra days. So and that's huge. I think that made a lot of difference. It did. I, mean, so I think we had like two extra days yeah. on this that we normally wouldn't have had. Well, and, and I it, think you're being somewhat generous. No. Uh, because I think that at a certain point you just turn the meter off and you just kept going. Yeah, well, that happens when you're doing a show you like. I mean, we do a lot of different kinds of shows in a year, but when we do the music stuff, I have to say, that's when you really really want to do more because it's just, when you're working with that kind of, when you're cooking with that kind of food, you know, it's just amazing, you know, and when... There's yeah. no rush like it for me anyway. And it, this was a hard film to make. When we pitched the idea, we pitched it in Berlin and a bunch of European countries, Arte and NDR Arte, chief among them, loved the idea. And we raised a bunch of money in Europe. And then it took us two years to get a Canadian broadcaster involved, two years to convince CBC to get on board. And when CBC said yes, it was the first arts uh, documentary, if you will, arts uh, performing arts film that they had commissioned in 10 years. So we knew that this was something special and that it was an enormous amount of work to get to the starting line. And then when we started the film, there were challenges upon challenges. Chief among them, we assumed that, you know, there were 20 great Christmas songs written by Jewish composers. And we, you know, starting with White Christmas and and going down the list. These are songs that get, get cleared fairly easily year after year. And we went to some of the, some some amazingly successful rights clearance people and they said, no, n- no problem. You know, I've cleared White Christmas a dozen times for these different projects. But it was actually quite honestly, combining of the Jewish angle. It was the context. And this was also a time when Trump had just come into office Mm -hmm. and every, and he was, it was make Christmas great again or bring back Merry Christmas or whatever. (laughs) And song after song, when we approached the estates, we were rejected. So we ended up with six, thank God, six estates that had the courage to say, you know, this film sounds interesting and we're not afraid of outing our Jewish composers. You know, apparently the Berlin estate didn't want people to know that Irving Berlin was a Jew, which, you know, is already a pretty well-known fact. <laughs> so all of that is to say there were, there were so many challenges and obstacles uh, getting this film off the ground that once we were able to to launch, I think we all wanted to really do our best. Well, guys, thank you very much for talking to us about this. Uh, Liam, do you want to tell people where they can see the film? Sure. Um, You can see it on CBC 
uh, in, Canada. I think in Canada, BBC in the UK. It's playing on NHK in Japan. It's playing on 19 PBS affiliates, and it will be on iTunes in both Canada and the US. Excellent. Nice. So, uh, we'll buy it. Thank you very much for talking to us about this. It was really great, and uh, we'll talk to everybody soon. Thanks to everyone who listens and participates in the show. Thanks to Richard, Gary, Liam, and Aaron for jumping on the show with us. Thanks to Stacey DuPas for letting us bend and twist her voice in our bumpers. You can follow the show at The Tone Benders and go to ToneBendersPodcast.com to leave a comment. You can support the podcast by shopping at ToneBendersPodcast.com slash Amazon or ToneBendersPodcast.com slash BH. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you all next time. Thanks a lot. <laughs>